Hello and welcome to our very first BCS podcast. I'm Beth Evans and I'm the course coordinator of the Bachelor of Community Services, a fully online degree under TAFE New South Wales Higher Education and delivered by TAFE Digital. The idea behind this podcast is to provide a space where we can talk about what's happening in the community services industry so students and teachers can keep up to date. We welcome any feedback or recommendations for future podcasts. I acknowledge the Darawell people who are the traditional owners of the land that I am on and I pay my my respects to our many First Nations people who may be listening to this podcast. Well, today is the 26th of May, 2020, and it is the day we observe National Sorry Day to remember and acknowledge the mistreatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands people who were forcibly removed from their families and communities and now known as the Stolen Generation. National Sorry Day is also a day to acknowledge the strength and resilience of survivors and how we can all play a part in the healing process. From tomorrow, it is National Reconciliation Week and this year's theme is In This Together, the current reality of which could not have been predicted when the theme was chosen last year. But reconciliation is about all our journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled nation. Additionally, tomorrow is the anniversary of the 1967 referendum. So it's an exciting time. As part of this journey of healing and reconciliation, First Nations need a representative body that can give them a voice in the laws and policies that affect them. The call for structural change, including constitutional change and the establishment of a Makarata Commission is known as the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And I've invited one of the Bachelor of Community Services teachers, Annie Druitt, to discuss this call for reform and what it means for students and workers in the community services industry. So welcome, Annie. Thank you for joining us on our very first podcast. G'day, Beth, and thank you for having me on your program. And today I'm actually talking from Darragland, which is the area, the country that I've been living on for the last 30-odd years in the beautiful Blue Mountains, Australia. The very cold blue mountains, no doubt. Yeah, we've got the heater going. <laughs> I've taken my Ugg boots off, <laughs> but I'm nice and cosy for our talk today. <laughs> well, thank you, Annie. Um, I thought we might start off by, um, if you'd like to just maybe tell us a little about yourself. Uh, sure. Um, I deliver and assess um, two subjects in the uh, community services um, program. Uh, one is uh, foundations of working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities uh, and foundations of working with and the second one is working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and both those um, subjects give students, um, well they attempt to give students a bird's eye view of what it's like in the Aboriginal space historically in the first subject and then the second subject is how to navigate their way around Aboriginal communities so we can look for true collaborative efforts and write new histories rather than repeat the past. Yeah. Thanks, Annie. And, and today is the third anniversary of the Uluru Statement. So why is this important to you? Oh, wow. Look, I, I, I reckon when uh, we've got to go back to the 67 referendum for how all these days are lined up because it's not happen chance that we have these three things that you mentioned all happening around at once. They are they are planned to coordinate with each other. But it all rocks back to the, the 1967 referendum. And for those people who are not familiar, that particular day, May 27, 67, basically 90 
50% of Australians voted yes to have Aboriginal people all across Australia counted in the census. Right. Many people mistake that for um, people who are actually given citizenship rights. But the significance of being counted in the census is really crucial. If we go back to 1901 when the um, federation documents were handed down, that's kind of like the Magna Carta, <laughs> except that ours was called the, the uh, Constitution of Australia, yeah. there, were, there was a section in there called Clause 127, and that particular clause said something along the lines of that Aborigines of the native race shall not be reckoned in the census. In other words, that meant people couldn't be counted. Mm. Now, when we think of a, a census these days, basically the purpose for a census is for a, for a government to work out how many people are on on the on on Australian soil mm. and where they live, mm. and this determines where our hospitals, our schools, our buses, our trains, where all our communities grow. And if Aboriginal people weren't included in that mix, then they weren't included in the design and development of, of all our societal structures. Yes. So it's really critical that, that people were in the count. And that's, in fact, what, what happened in 1967. Mm -hmm. So soldier on from then, and then we have the, the apology coming down. There was a first apology in 1988, which was um, given by one of the, the current senators, the father of reconciliation, um, Senator Dodson. That was in 1998. But the real thing that we remember on Sorry Day was the uh, the day when the, the Bringing Them Home report was handed down. And that prompted um, the then Prime Minister to, to give a national apology. The brilliant thing about when Rudd did that is that he went back to Stolen Generation people and said, hey, help me with what to say. And so on February the or the 13th of that particular year, um, he rocked up in Parliament House with all of the many people from the Stolen Generation sitting in Parliament House and many, many people across Australia sitting either outside or indoors or in crowds together waiting to hear these particular words. Yeah. And oh, look, what, what, what blew my mind about that particular day, I, I happened to be, um, I was training with a group at Parramatta and we'd gone up to the Parramatta Civic Centre to sit with a huge mob mm -hmm. but what blew me away about it is that he used sorry in the way that it was meant to be right um the mr well the, the former prime minister mistaken mistakenly thought that sorry was about um reparation and it's really in the anglo-saxon word if you look it up in the dictionary it's kind of like if i accidentally hit you with my elbow in the supermarket or hit you with the trolley or bump you i say sorry um it may or may not mean i've got to pay you some money yeah. But in the Aboriginal sense, sorry is one word of, of, of a two-word concept, and it's really sorry business. And sorry business is about grieving. It's about mourning. It's about loss. Right. And it's being able to, to do um, a ceremony. If we think of births, deaths and marriages, it's being able to do the, the death ceremonies and acknowledge that within a community and have people around you. So many of the children of uh, stolen generation, or many, yeah, many of the stolen generation members, their mothers weren't able to have that grieving process. Yeah. So it gave those women an opportunity to do what they needed to do in terms of grieving, mm -hmm. even though it was, you know, many years late. Yeah, yeah. Now a very moving time, and I, you know, I guess probably not appreciated by people outside that community as well, um, how significant it was. 
Now, look, and a lot of it got really confused because of this misinterpretation of the, the word sorry. Mm -hmm. um, often when I have live groups of students and I show that to them, I go, oh, wow. I mean, it's actually so simple yeah. and it doesn't need to be complicated. And when we send mixed messages about words, we take away the real meaning because it, it shifts away the focus onto something that is not so relevant. Mm. And I mean, so moving on from um, Sorry Day, um, what's been the journey since then? Well, it's exciting because we've had um, so many people um, recreating almost the energy, energy and the inertia that came with uh, the 67 referendum. Mm -hmm. If I can backtrack for, for a little bit in that, the 67 referendum um, wasn't just a 10-year thing. It was probably a 30 or 40-year thing. But it culminated in the 10 years before 67 because there was a, an Aboriginal activist called Pearl Gibbs and what she did is she brought into her circle um, key activists to work with her towards creating um, what, what, what is now known as a reconciliation group. Um, but the way that I like to describe it is if we backtrack a little, um, when we look at the kinship structure inside Aboriginal communities, it, it has skin group one and skin group two and they make up a clan. I mean, they're not called one and two, they're, they're called the language names of each particular country across Australia. But if we're talking at a concept level, each of those skin groups reside within a clan and you can't marry anybody inside your own skin group, but you can cross over into the other skin group. Now, that makes a really that diversifies the gene pool. Now, what Gibbs as an activist did um, in the early 50s, she was inspired by that structure. And so she reckoned that, wow. She said, you know, Australia, we have a problem. A lot of the issues that we have in terms of Aboriginal people not being counted in a census and not having equal rights and not being able to vote was because people actually weren't working together. So she recommended, hey, let's put together an Aboriginal Australian Fellowship. And it emulated the plan or the, the blueprint of skin groups. So it was a white fella group and a black fella group circled by the fellowship. So in some ways, she was standing on the shoulders of um, 65,000 years of culture to bring Australians together. So let's move forward over to um, Uluru, where we had many people moving together from the Aboriginal side from all over the country. There are well over 300 groups that came together to brainstorm what they'd been hearing from their own communities over the, the previous 12 months. Mm -hmm. So that brought together that side. And I guess the interesting thing about that is, well, where is the, the whitefellas side now? Yeah. And I don't think we've actually nailed this problem yet, yeah. or nailed this issue, because it's not the, the, the group who, who, who appears to be in that fellowship, if we go back to Gibbs's original model, is actually the people who are at Uluru and politicians. Mm. And the Australian people need to make a vote as to whether that comes. Whereas in actual fact, it's not about the politicians being in the mix, but it's the Australian people. Right. So we've yeah we've yet to actually get that one together. Now the government has got um, I've forgotten the correct terminology for it, but there is a group that's headed up by uh, Tom Karma and Marcia Langton, and that actually does have a mix of Aboriginal and other Australians on that particular group. Yeah. And their job is to go and talk more and gather more information and then give some recommendations back to the Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. However, the challenge with that is that they've got a, 
the shopping list designed by the Prime Minister, not by the people who made up the Uluru, not by the people at Uluru who made up the Makarata. So right. it's it's kind of consultation around specific terms, not around what was spoken about at Uluru necessarily. But Annie, there's a bit of an attitude in some sectors of society that history is not a debt to be repaid. So why don't we just put a line in the sand and move on? Oh, God. <laughs> wow. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that statement. I mean, okay, what if, what, what if I were to say, why don't we put a line under Anzac Day and move on? Why don't we put a, a line under the bushfires of, of uh, last February and move on? Why don't we put a line on any of the events that have happened in the mainstream world and move on? Mm. And it's just, look, humans are humans, mm. regardless of our, our background, our ancestry, um, trauma, when we, uh, when we experience trauma in our, in our families and our communities and our society, in wars, in sexual assaults, in the whole range of trauma, I mean, you just can't draw a line underneath that. So why, if we expect that of one group, then we need to apply that to all groups. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think also what we see uh, too is that, that we, we hear, hear the statement, history repeats itself, and, and that's really evident, isn't it, today, mm. globally? We're seeing, you know, a, a lot of countries heading down those paths where people have forgotten their own histories and we're starting to see some of those uh, uh, trauma coming out of countries, you know, related to the COVID, of course, but you know, it's coming out of these countries where you have people in charge who have forgotten um, what these of their own countries are. And I think that's a, a, a very strong message too. We need to hear our histories um, and it's all our histories. And I think we need to uh, acknowledge those histories and, and, and look at how they impact on us today and make sure that as we're moving forward, we're, we're uh, uh, applying that in everything that we're doing, the decision-making, in our collaborations. Um, you know, I think that's a really important part as well. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I think um, when we look at the, uh, well, if I look at the, the stats on trauma, because mm. this is the trauma space, um, research from Melbourne a couple of years back suggested that by the time people capped it in Australia, mm. they dropped off the perch, so to speak, that 69% of uh, people would have experienced some form of trauma. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that all changed with the bushfires down the east coast around Christmas yes. and that widened the pool. But what that, that also says to me is that whatever, whatever our source of trauma, whether it be from our, our Aboriginal experiences, whether it be from wars that our mainstream parents have experienced, whether that be from the, the sexual assault that people experienced um, in institutions, or whether that be through domestic violence, the number of people that have been touched by trauma in Australia has exponentially increased, which means that we've got more things in common. When we separate those traumas out, we differentiate ourselves and it minimises another person's trauma. But when we look at that from a collective space, it goes, oh, wow, we have something to connect and be able to, to communicate about because they're, they're shared. The experience itself might not be so, so, so um, the same, mm. but the way that we respond to that is the same. Now, historically... Um, we've learned um, as, a, as a nation, and I don't think it's just Australia, I think worldwide we've learned to be silent about, about those experiences. And when people have actually learned, hey, we've got to tell the truth, mm. which is one of the underpinning things about the, uh, the, the Makarada is let's get into truth-telling, mm. 
is that we then start to heal. We start to peel back those scars that, that have been hurting people. And then we start to be honest with ourselves and then we can be honest with others. And that, that becomes a, a, an open communication. And I, I guess as once we start to do that with ourselves, then when we go into the, uh, the community development sector, which we both mm. work in, is that we're actually working with people from those sectors who've been hurting, but they don't necessarily have any tools to do that either at a, an individual level or a, a collective level. So as uh, people in the community development space, it's how do we do that that creates a sense of safety for people to, in fact, communicate and collaborate with each other? But I guess one of the underpinning things of that is when we've got to learn to trust ourselves and then we've got to work out how do we trust other people who come into our orbit, which become, well, they make the community development sector very interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned there a moment ago um, about collaboration. Uh, you know, so when we look at this idea of collaboration, and it's one of the, the, the statements you hear thrown around a lot around this time in the week, you know, during reconciliation, how does a mainstream organisation... Um, actually go about collaboration. We see a bit of lip service going on. You know, they, they write nice policies and people go to training, whatever else. But what does true collaboration look like? Oh, God, how much time have we got? <laughs> um, look, in a sense, um, if we go back to, I'm going to make an analogy with um, the corporate sector and what they call customer service. And customer service is always linked to this concept called quality improvement. And the underpinnings of customer service is for a service provider to go and say, hey, you've got a problem. I'd like to solve it. Tell me about your problem and I'll see if I can find a solution for you. So you actually find out what the needs are before you start to provide the solution. I think these days the solutions are there and they're saying, hey, I've got the best solution for you and this is going to work which means that you consult after the product is designed rather than before the product is designed. Mm -hmm. um, so if I can go for a cheeky um, segue, if we look at the concept of job seeker and job keeper, those products were designed in mind of fixing a problem, but not necessarily working out what are the real issues for people in terms of, of having an income and how do they work it. Yeah. So it doesn't work so well. And again, um, if, we're, if we're working in the Aboriginal space, Aboriginal people are used to governments and, unfortunately, um, not-for-profits going to them and saying, hey, we've got a solution for you. If we're going to go for true collaboration, it's not going with a solution. It's saying, hey, Houston, we have a problem. What is the problem? Let's name it and let's work out what is it that will work for you to make that better. Yes, we look, we look at that, that bottom-up approach, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, if people are involved in the design of the solution, then they're more likely to make that work. Whereas if the solution is imposed on them because it's one size fits all, then it's not going to work for very many at all. Whereas, again, the, I guess one of the, the out um, byproducts of uh, the stolen generation and all that work that happened back after, I think, the 2007 intervention into the Northern Territory was the closing the gap. Now, when we look at the, the indicators, the key performance indicators for closing the gap, all of those are identified by right. government. They're not identified by individual yeah. communities. So when the government says, oh, you know, we've got problems in um, housing, education, um, health, et, uh, et cetera, they're not issues that are identified by the local community. Mm -hmm. 
so there's not going to be as much buy-in. So if we're going back to the issue of collaboration, which is your original question, we've actually got to find out what's important and what has meaning for the people who are going to be impacted by these programs and what do they want in the true sense of customer service. What do you want and how do we provide what you need? All right, so let's, uh, let's uh, look at it from the perspective of our students then. What does this all mean for them as students learning about the community services industry, moving into that sector as workers? Um, what, what should be something that they should be taking with them from this? I think one of the, the, the challenges for a, a person who hovers on the outside of the Aboriginal space but not necessarily in it, which might be some of our students, but they kind of are intrigued and fascinated by, by the Aboriginal space is... You've got, to, you've got to ask everybody that you deal with, how does it work? Now, look, I'll give a case in point, um, and it's an embarrassing case, but nonetheless, it, it, it serves the point because it's, it's true. Um, back in the day, I remember graduating from my course at Bathurst Charles Sturt University. I spent a year as a house parent in Sydney, and then I went out to Wilcannia to do my very first job as a youth worker in the youth development sector. And, and Wilcannia had never had a youth worker in that space before. And I get out there, and on my way out, about two or three months before I, I got the job, I got invited to go to a, a youth worker training program at Ningen. And I met some people there who then pointed me in the direction of um, Orange. And I went to Orange to the sport and recreation people in Orange, and they pointed me to this brilliant tyre playground. And and the tyre playground, um, we're talking 35 years ago, this is made out of tyre tractors. I mean, it's a huge playground that's made out of recycled tyres. And Annie's brain goes ballistic and thinks, oh, yeah, you little ripper, I can do that in Wilcannia. (laughs) So so I took this plan out to Wilcannia. I tried to give them a solution that wasn't going to fit. I found an empty block of land. I found a, a whole paddock full of um, tyres, got them all dumped on, on this area that, that we're going to use as a playground. And after I'd made the decision about after I, the youth worker, had made the decision about that, then I thought I would go and consult with the uh, community about how they would want the layout of the, of the uh, playground to be what it was supposed to look like, make, make, make a map where the swings were going to be and where the, you know, the roundabout was going to be. And that was doomed to failure because I didn't ask if people wanted the playground in the first place. I didn't ask them if they wanted it in that. And, in fact, I didn't even go back and say, hey, what do you want? Rather, I took my own solutions in. So as community development workers, wow, if I hadn't known what I know today about, uh, you know, I've got to ask what people want. I've got to say, what, what are your issues that you want to work on? What's a priority for you? And how do you want to prioritise all the things that come up? It's really going back and asking the people that you're serving, what do they want and how do they want it rather than going in with a solution that I think is brilliant. And so what did you do with all the tyres? Um, look, I think they stayed there for quite a few years afterwards until they rotted because they're on an empty block of land anyway, but I, I can't really tell you the story of what happened there because I, I, I never found out. Um, but it was look, it was one of the hardest lessons that I've ever learned, but it took me years to recognise what I'd done and what I could have done. Well, well, I think we're probably um, just about out of time for our very first podcast. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much, Annie, for joining me today and being part of this um, new journey for us uh, in the Bachelor of Community Services. And thank you to everybody who's listening. 
Uh, I hope you do subscribe to our podcast on your preferred feed so that you don't miss any of the episodes. And as I said earlier, we welcome any comments, feedback and suggestions for future podcasts. Um, And if you stay listening uh, after this, uh, we'll be playing uh, the the reading of the Uluru Statement from the Heart by Professor Megan Davis. Um, So I hope you hang on and listen to that. But thank you, Annie, for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to talk about the things I love. (laughs) And thanks, everyone, for listening. And bye for now. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or modern nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? that peoples possess the land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, We are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth language in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It catches our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counselled. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp 
and start our trek across this vast country. And we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future.